Hello, bienvenue, and brochim habayim. Welcome to High Montreal, the podcast. We're your hosts, Lisa Winston and Sarah Bellani. I'm very fortunate that I've been able to visit Paris multiple times to visit friends and family and explore the beautiful architecture, museums, and of course, the pâtisserie. But in every visit, I encounter reminders of the past in the form of plaques affixed to the front of buildings stating that Jewish residents, shop owners, or school children once frequented this very spot until their deportation, usually to Auschwitz. In my last visit to Paris, on my way to the newly opened Samaritaine department store, I was faced with a plaque across the street from the shop. On 19 Rue de l'Arbre Sec stands an elementary school with a brown plaque on the wall beside the front door in memory of the children of the school who were deported between 1942 and 1944 because they were born Jewish. More than 11,400 children were deported from France. Strikingly, on the other side of the door reads the French motto, Liberté, Égalité, Fraternité, Liberty, Equality, Brotherhood. Despite the 1789 revolution's declarations of equality, some of France's notable voices for the country's supposed sense of self refused to accept Jews as truly French, regardless of what they contributed to the national ethos. In today's episode, Lisa speaks with James McCauley, author of The House of Fragile Things. In his book, James brings to life the stories of some of Paris's most prominent Jewish families before the Second World War, including the Camando, the Rothschilds, the Afrusis, and the Caen d'Enfer, so that we remember their lives and contributions to their country, despite their country's failures to live up to the assertions in that famous motto. Our next guest, James McCauley, has a BA in history and literature. He has a PhD in French history from the University of Oxford. He is a Marshall Scholar. He is a global opinions contributing columnist at the Washington Post. And he's a former Paris correspondent for the Washington Post. And he's currently been transferred to the European Political and Social Affairs desk. Welcome to our podcast. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Pleasure to be with you. Now, we're going to talk about your latest production, The House of Fragile Things, Jewish Mm -hmm. Art Collectors and the Fall of France. It explores the role of art and material culture played in the assimilation and identity of French Jews before World War II. And you're currently at work. Your next production will be the biography of Edmund de Rothschild and the earliest Zionist movement. So um, I'm going to ask you for The House of Fragile Things, Jewish art collectors in the fall of France. It's so chock full of information about uh, the history of France at that time, about the the Jews residing in France or or, uh, the Paris region. Um, It gives us a lot of food for thought, but I'm going to let you give us a short synopsis of the book so you can give away as much as you want or as little as you want to entice people to read it because it's a fascinating read. Uh, Well, thank you so much. Um, Yeah, so the book is, I would say, a kind of group biography of four prominent families who, all all of them Jewish families, of course, in France uh, between, so during the years of the Third Republic, which means the years of 1870 leading up to the Second World War. 
And that was a very tumultuous time that included, of course, the First World War, um, and specifically in the French context, the unprecedented social drama of the Dreyfus Affair, when you had this unbelievable tidal wave of anti-Semitism that kind of came crashing out of, uh, not out of nowhere, but with an, with an intensity that had not yet um, been seen. And it is about this group of people, all of whom were, um, all of these families, I should mention, were sort of intermarried um, among each other. So it was, to borrow the famous phrase of Chaim Berman, it was really a cousinhood. So it's really one large family and certainly a social group that lived um, together and that was very familiar with each other and that sort of were always um, side by side through the tumults of those years. And what I tried to show was a group of people who lived in an impossible moment and who tried to survive however they could and specifically who tried to create something beautiful in a hostile and unforgiving universe. And, you know, I know that the specific lens of the art can seem quite niche, but I found, you know, in my research and reading, and this indeed began as my PhD dissertation, that, um, you know, the France of the fin de siècle, um, the, 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 the turn of the century, it was a fundamentally material place in so many ways. So art and, and objet d'art and material objects were crucial to a sense of nationhood that was being actively hashed out um, because you had for the first time all of these sort of formerly noble and royal collections on the market. You had a new class of financial um, elites that were able to purchase them. And so there, there was a there was a real like the the art and the objects were the sort of battlefield for the soul of the nation. And so um, I was fascinated by the ways in which these these Jewish families who were also very elite um, and in that sort of plutocratic class with other sort of non-Jewish um, upstarts in the time who'd made their fortunes in banking or or industry, the way that they um, they, they were, they were, you know, as usual, the kind of consummate insider outsiders and the way that they sort of turned to the art and the objects to create a sense of belonging um, in a fraught social environment. And I was particularly interested in the families. Um, I mean, the, the way I chose the families was through um, bequests that they had each made to the state. And it's extremely important that each of the families in the book left a major gift to France in the form of a private house museum or um, some version of that. And those were all done before the war in either the late 20s or the 30s. And that's fascinating to me because it, like a, a high percentage of those gifts of that great sort of philanthropic moment were from Jewish families. And each of the collections bore a recognizably Jewish name. And each of the collections also very important was of kind of French 18th century art, meaning that we, these embattled families, um, have curated a love letter to the nation that we wish to be part of and that we feel very grateful for. And so that's in the 30s, right? And we know how the story ends, but they didn't, which is what makes it particularly devastating. Of course, in the 1940s, France falls to the Nazis. Um, the Vichy government materializes in the so-called free zone, um, which was, of course, not free at all in the southern part of the country. Vichy pursues its own host of horrible anti-Semitic 
uh, laws and pieces of legislation of its own accord and you know uh, basically betrays the the same citizens that had given the nation so much and so I was I was interested in so many things. I mean, France in that time, the Jewish experience in France, which we can I hope talk a little bit about, which is I think particularly fascinating for many reasons, and also just you know the psychology of collecting, and and that I think is it's um it's a profoundly human trait. I mean, I, I focused on elites, but of course we all have relations to objects, things, and stuff. And it's, you know, we have these relationships with things that are in some ways deeper and more complicated than our relationship with words and with the other means of expression that we have at our disposal. And so I was fascinated to consider these collections as self-portraits and as sort of historical source materials, not so much about the art, but about the people that left them behind. And it's the people that really motivated me here. Um, and I was, I was really, I mean, it was years of, of archive, uh, archival sleuthing. And I just, I loved, um, you know, following some of these characters. And the, the point of the book, if there is one, is to show, um, is to just to restore a little bit of who they were, because of course it's been forgotten. Absolutely. So as you, all, you almost answered all my questions, Noah. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm just joking. Um, so let's I'll take the point, bring it up about Dreyfus, because you mentioned that. So we'll discuss that for, for a few minutes first, because um, you say in a way it was surprising, but if you read about the, the journalists who wrote about the collections of the, the Jewish families that were collecting French art, it was so anti-Semitic. How it could surprise them about the Dreyfus affair. These people were trying to collect and mm -hmm. they were trying to feel part of the society. Mm -hmm. And the society was the non-Jewish society was not accepting them. And it's so it's so evident in some of the um the information that you give in the book about the journalists who just wrote about their their collection saying it was so trivial and so declassé you know so uh, you know not not of their of the quality of the aristocrats in France of the non-jewish variety hmm. so it's 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 funny how it could be surprising to them sometimes when you're living within that world you try not to see um, what's happening Absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, I think just to say a little bit more, I mean, we in the introduction um, on that note, I mentioned how in that period, the Third Republic, the turn of the century, the era of the Dreyfus affair, art and objects had become, um, in a sense, the battlefield for the soul of the nation. Um, and that's very true. But one um, particular argument I try to make in the book um, is about the nature of anti-Semitism at the time. And you allude to this with your um, comments about like what the journalists were writing about these Jewish collectors. And again, um, you know, I think that the history of anti-Semitism, of course, is, is, is very long and very complicated, but we often allied all different kinds of anti-Semitism um, which had different terms and, you know, different sort of intellectual origins in different moments and in different places into the same, um, you know, you could even think of it as a, the way it's often presented as a sort of teleology of tragedy that, you know, cult, that culminates inevitably um, 
in Auschwitz or, or, or with you know, the, the, the Nazi rise to power. And that there is obviously some truth in that. The object of the hatred is the same in every case. But I think it's if, if we are interested in understanding what it was like for Jews in a particular moment to um, encounter um, that prejudice, we really need to pay attention to the specific terms and where they were coming from because it tells us quite a lot. And so what I try to do in the book is inhabit the very particular and very distinct anti-Semitism of the French fin de siècle, which I call um, material anti-Semitism because it really was. So much of the, the, the vitriol and the vehemence um, anti-Semites like the journalist Edouard Drummond or, or even the sort of acclaimed art critics, uh, the Goncourt brothers, you know, they, they honed in on their perception of Jewish foreignness through um, what they perceived to be an aesthetic deficiency. So the, the figure of the Jew in their mind could never understand this sort of platonic higher ideal of true beauty. And Jewish collections, therefore, were ersatz and were sort of facsimiles of the truth and could only ever be this, um, this fake fraud, in a sense. So that, that was so much of what these families faced. And they were all attacked regularly by name in every major newspaper and every, I mean, Drummond is um, particularly important because, you know, before the rise of Hitler, he was widely seen as the most vitriolic anti-Semite in modern European history, or at least Western European history. And, um, you know, if you read La France Juive, um, his tirade, um, came, which came out in 1886, so before the Dreyfus Affair, about, um, I mean, it translates to Jewish France, of course. It's about how the nation has sort of fallen prey to this sort of Jewish financial conspiracy. I mean, it's basically the protocols of the elders of Zion reheated for the, for, for the, for the, for the contemporary moment. But the actual way that he makes his case against each of these families, and again, they're all in there, one after the other, is through the art and the objects that they bought and that they owned and the houses that they, that they um, uh, had purchased and were living in. Because in his mind, it constituted a Jewish invasion of French cultural patrimony. And that I, I found fascinating. And it tells us quite a lot about the, both the prejudices that these collectors and families were facing, but also why it was that they were so obsessed with art and objects to formulate their response. And I sort of suggest in the book that each of the collections that they created and that they ultimately donated were proud responses to that line from Drummond, the Goncourt, and others. I read The House of Fragile Things. I also got it, the impression that it was also, they had the uh, audacity, the Jewish families had the audacity, not just the fact that they didn't know how to collect and it wasn't, their, their collections were, 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 you know, hollow, but they had the money to collect it and they had the audacity to own it as foreign beings, as foreign citizens, Jews, yeah. which were not part of France. So that I found was, was a bit, to me, was a big part of it also, that what right did they have to own any French history? Absolutely. I think that's absolutely right. Um, yeah, it was seen as a sort of, as, as somewhat of an aggression against this made up mythical conception of France, which by the way, is, um, is a long history of immigration as you know the likes of like historians like Patrick Boucheron have shown amply. I mean, the, the history of France is a story 
of um, of you know foreigners coming and being part of the the Universalist Republic, which by the way is supposed to recognize citizens regardless of um, ethnic origin, religious uh, difference, or, or anything else. But of course, uh, reality was much more complicated at the time, and still is today. Mm -hmm. And also, I was just going to mention about we talk you talking a lot about collectors, and it is of course people people it becomes you know almost an obsession, but um, for them, for the Jewish the Jews who were doing it, it also seems like this is how I'm going to show that I've become part of your community. Yeah. I'm going to collect your art and then I'm going to give it back to you, mm -hmm. but. Unfortunately, it seems that the, the French or the non-Jewish French community did not have the same sentiment. It, again, back to the Jews having the audacity of buying it, and then they're going to show it uh, with their names attached to it. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. Um, there was a sense of, well, I mean, these, I mean, if, if you think about it, I mean, th this, um, this wave of donations to the state from Jewish families from about 1925 and 1935, I mean, it surely counts among the greatest acts of philanthropy in modern history. I mean, purely if we're thinking about on any level, the money uh, given, the art given, any of it, the, the, the historic homes that were then state property open to the public. I mean, this was a huge collective gift. And there wasn't, I mean, it, it was received with with very little gratitude, um, which uh, makes it very difficult reading, I think, um, following the correspondence of these families over the years. Because of course it did not help them. And, and you know, the end of your book is, is about what happened uh, in the Second World War, pre-Second World right. War. It didn't help, it, no. you know. All and I, I don't know, one of the most haunting uh, things that I found in the archives and doing the book. Um, so long story short, um, I'm sure many of our audience members today may have visited Paris and may have been to the Camondo collection, which is in some ways the center of the book. Um, uh, Moise de Camondo, the legendary collector who created this sort of um, jewel box on the Parc Monceau in Paris, uh, one of the collections I write about in the book, his daughter Beatrice de Camondo married another one of the family, uh, the sons of one of the other families, the Rhinocks, who were also a great um, uh, French family at the time, you know, served in parliament, donated their own house in the south of France, which was my personal favorite of all the collections I looked at. Um, anyway, the war comes along, Leon Rhinoc and Beatrice de Camondo um, are, you know, loath to leave Paris, I think because they can't really conceive of what is happening. How could you? I mean, who who would have been able to understand exactly what was happening, you know, when it began? Um, but there's this letter from Leon Reinach to the Vichy authorities, basically delineating every single thing both his father-in-law and wife and own father have done for France. Um, and it's just it's heartbreaking to read because you know, his argument is like, we have done so much for the country. How can any of this be possible? Why is our property being seized? Why are we being treated this way? Surely there must be some mistake. But of course there wasn't a mistake. I mean, of course that was the, the aim all along, but you just, you see that um, so many of these families had, uh, the letter is so instructive because it shows you the mindset that they were in and that they, they 
in some ways failed to ever escape because they really believed um, the, the the promise um, that they that they had made with themselves that if they only were um, you know perfect exemplary citizens all would be well um, and it's just it's just devastating because of course in the end it was too late. What attracted you to to these stories? You have um your PhD in French history is from. Oxford, so in England, you're you're American, yeah. and you're writing about French history, about French Jewish history. What was it that attracted you to this particular point in history and to write a book, um, The House of Fragile Things? Like, what struck your, you know, what what did you see that you said, you know, that's something I'm going to spend because it's a lot of time to write a PhD thesis and a book on this period. Yeah, um, I mean, so I should say I am Jewish myself. Um, and I, I had the great fortune of growing up and spending a lot of time in France. Um, and I, you know, I, I come from you know, American Jewish perspective on a lot of this. And I, despite all that, you know, in so many of our family stories, at least in the U.S., we hear about um, uh, you know, the experience of East European Jewish life and German Jewish life. I was always fascinated by the story of the Jews in France because it has a particular significance in, um, I would, I, I think, um, the larger discussion about the place of particularity and you know specific minority communities in a so-called universalist society, which of course is how France bills itself, even now. And I was fascinated by that because you know. Um, and I'm not the only one to feel this way. There are, I mean, scholars like uh, Maurice Samuels at Yale have written about how you know, the, the, the entire notion of universalism a la Française was a concept um, in many ways, you know, in the, the long 19th century from the time of the French Revolution. It was a concept that was formulated with the very particular um, example of the Jewish minority in mind. And I think that's fascinating. Uh, France, of course, is the first Western nation to emancipate its Jewish community in the revolution. And so there is this um, social experiment at work. And I found that fascinating. And I think that it, it, it illuminates a lot of other debates um, that we have uh, today, I mean, in France and beyond about the place of minorities in um, in, in broader society. Now, um, about the specific um, uh, project and where it came from, I mean, again, so I, you know, I've mentioned that I've been interested in sort of French Jewish history just from, for personal reasons and spending a lot of time in France and for all of those sort of larger philosophical elements. But um, when I was a child, I went to the Camondo Museum for the first time. And I, I would have been maybe a little older than a child, like maybe around 12 or so. And was brought there by my parents, you know, dragged along another museum at the end of the day. And it it's just, for those of you who have been, I mean, it is just an absolutely haunting and immersing place. And I didn't really know um, before I arrived that it was the story of a Jewish family. And to be honest, there wasn't a lot um, at the museum at that time that made that point. 
And I think if you um, if you come from that background, it's instantly clear to you. There's a plaque um, when you come in that says, um, you know, the that commemorates the opening of the museum in 1936 and says, oh, you know, the, the bequest of the Count de Camondo, blah, 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 blah. And then underneath, there was a small other plaque, I believe added in the 60s, that says, um, you know, the daughter of the Count de Camondo, Beatrice Reinach, and her husband and two children all murdered in Auschwitz. Um, and that is shocking. And so that, you know, that's what you, it's just a tiny little mention of it. And then you kind of come into this house, which is like, it's sort of like a Downton Abbey experience. I mean, you, it's this kind of very elite, kind of rarefied world, and it ended in the most brutal, horrifying way. And I just, you know, I, I have since come to appreciate the art, but I really came at it from the perspective of the people. And I just knew at that age that one day this was something I had to write about. I mean, it really spoke to me and it was just haunting. I mean, it really is. And I'm sure many have, um, many have had that same experience. And you just, you walk in the house and you think um, that it's just, there's, um, there's this kind of eerie, but also inescapable feeling of absence. Um, you know, there's all the furniture and that's, you know, there are specialists in the 18th century period who, you know, um, really, I think, get a, quite a lot out of that. But what I got a lot out of was just the bedrooms and the the place where daily life happened for this family that was totally wiped out. And that um, I just knew then that I would have to do something with it. And then once I started looking into it later as a PhD student, I realized that the Camondo were not alone, that pretty much every other family in their milieu had given a similar space or collection to the state. And I thought, well, that's interesting. Um, there's something there, and that's um, how this became the book. And did you did were there plenty of archives? Did you uh, could you could you find it mostly in Paris? Did you have to go further afield um, to the south of France? Did you have one of the families? I think the origins were from Turkey. Well, the origins before Paris were from Turkey. So were you did you have to go to many different places? Or did you find most of your information? in Paris? So most was in France. Um, and yes, it was a huge burden having to go occasionally to the south of France for research there. Um, not for the faint of heart, I should say. Um, but I I went, let's see, there's um, mostly in France, um, some archives in London or in the UK as well. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it was, a, it was a dream. I mean, the best part, I mean, for me, the 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 archive is the is the best place to work and this was heavily archival in the way that it it kind of emerged so I, I loved every minute of working on it the house of fragile things jewish art collectors in the fall of france it's what you, it's what you alluded to what you said before because you know you have to know your past to sort of see the future and what's happening in in, in different countries today whether it's anti-semitism or anti-immigration mm -hmm. um or the situation in Ukraine with between the Ukraine with Ukraine and um, Russia. If you read about the past and you've given so much information, you can look at the, the, the present and the future with with a different eye because you have knowledge. Somebody once said, I forget who it was, if you in the 30, 1930s, if you were in Berlin, you said, where was there going to be a mass extinction of Jews? People would have told you France mm -hmm. from their history not from not Germany. So um, I right. think that the, the House of Fragile Things is a fascinating read, Jewish Art Collectors in the Fall of France. I asked you a last question because it is about art collecting 
Um, you've told us how you were interested in the past. Were you interested in art itself? Is that why you chose the collecting? Yeah, I mean, I think um, this was, a. I mean, the, the history of the Jews in France is a huge topic. And it is also a topic um, on which there is a very formidable literature. So um, by focusing on the collecting angle specifically, um, and as I mentioned, I'm really, what I'm mostly interested in are the particular families and their experiences. But the art was my way of um, trying to make a scholarly contribution to an already crowded shelf, essentially, because there is not a lot on uh, Jews and art in general for obvious reasons, um, even now in, in, in um, the historiography. And so I was, and that, that's begun to change, by the way. Um, and I was, my idea was just to, to do something that had not necessarily been explored before in the hopes of um, you know, making some new insights and um, whatever small contribution I could. So I hope we've given everybody a tum, a taste uh, of what's in the House of Fragile Things, Jewish art collectors in the fall of France. James McCauley, thank you so much for being on High Montreal, the podcast, and spending some time with us. Yeah, thank you so much for, for having me and for taking an interest in the book. I really appreciate it. Thanks for joining us on this episode of Chai Montreal, the podcast. In his book, The House of Fragile Things, James reminds us of the lives of the Jewish community members and their striving to live as equal citizens in the country they called home. Though available only in English for now, we hope the book will be translated into French so that the stories of the families will live on in La Patrie, along with the homes that they bequeathed to the state and that people continue to enjoy today. We would love for you to follow or hit subscribe on the platform on which you're listening to this podcast episode. Until next time, shalom, v'lehitraot.